Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. chapter 3, you'll find it on page 802, uh, 802 of the Church Bibles. Let's hear God's word together. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Amen. May God bless to us his holy word. May I add my welcome uh, to David. My name is Will Allen. I'm the assistant uh, minister here. Would you please uh, take, up one, uh, take up your Bible again and turn back to Malachi chapter 3. Now, tonight, as we come to the the close of Malachi, we're we're brought again into the world of Israel 400 years before uh, before Jesus was born. And although it can uh, sometimes sound a bit different, actually, as we found over the last few weeks, it's not actually that dissimilar uh, to today. Because for these guys, there was a big kind of comparison game going on. And if you're anything like me, you're, you're probably comparing with others uh, the whole time. You know, we compare what people are wearing, how they look, I don't know what their grades are, how how their kids behave, what car they drive, how old they are, their accent, their skin color, their job, their wage packet, what, what books they read. You know, it's just a start, isn't it? 
And, and even if it's just subtle in our hearts, we're not necessarily thinking about it, it does impact us, doesn't it? It, it actually can drive us. It can, can make us ambitious. We, we want to be like that person, or we, we want to do what they do. We, we want to own what they own. You know, this, this comparison game, it, it asks us, what are we going to head for? What kind of person do we want to be? Actually, what comparison is going to matter? You know, we're going to head for what God wants or what our society wants. Because also this, this comparison game actually wraps itself into our happiness and actually our contentment in life. You know, as I look at others, it can have a big impact on, on how I view myself and my, my own lot in life. And we're going to see uh, through Malachi that some kinds of comparison, well, they lead to discontentment, frustration with what I have, and, and actually disaster. But others, they lead to contentment. Contentment and then glory. Total opposites. And what's interesting is that means, you know, in the present, we might be able to tell what kind of comparison game we're playing by whether we're happy or not. Content with our lot in life, or actually discontent, struggling, always wanting more. And the Israelites, well, sadly, many of them were stuck in the wrong kind of comparison game and show us actually the secret of discontentment. They're not happy with what they have in life and they want more. But then we will see God opens up for us a very different view of life, one that shows us the secret of contentment in self. So let's... Firstly, just see, uh, have a look at Israel and see how they show us the secret of discontentment. That's kind of our first thing, the secret of discontentment. Let's read again verses 13 to 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So right here, we've got a bunch of people discontent. They're utterly frustrated with a lot they have in life. They, they say that, you know, they've chosen to go with God, but it feels like they've got the worst of both worlds. You know, life sucks and everyone else seems to be doing fine. And at the end, they're saying it's not worth it. It's vain to serve God. And the secret of their discontentment, well, they've ended up comparing in completely the wrong way. And so they've ended up wanting to follow the wrong kind of people. So firstly, they show a secret number one. Secret number one is this. Compare the stuff you have. If you want to be discontent in life as a Christian, compare the stuff you have. These Israelites, they were looking at what's happened to their stuff. They're with God, and life just doesn't seem to come with them. Verse 14, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What is the profit? Leading to the answer, well, none. There is no profit. Following God, it doesn't bring me riches and stuff that others have. You know, what, what I've chosen doesn't seem to work. And what others have chosen, well, that seems to be doing very well, thank you very much. Verse 15, the arrogant are blessed. The evildoers, they're prospering. 
You know, perhaps the Israelites were looking around them and all they could see, and those were their own kind of smaller tents or smaller houses, older camels, their sandals were wearing thin, poorer prospects, not many sheep in their flock. And across the street, well, there was the guy. He didn't go to temple. He didn't worship God. He was known to be a liar and a cheat. And what did he have? He had everything. He had the latest shiny cart. I don't know, a house on Lake Galilee with a sea view. Extra servants. A plentiful supply of sheep and goats. And perhaps you know this. You know, when we compare the stuff we have, being a Christian, it brings with it a cost. It is not the way to make a lucrative life. Following Jesus brings sacrifice. We, we give away our money to, to church and to those who need it. We try to be hospitable. We might turn down job opportunities that take us away from family or from uh, church. We, we found ourselves out of favor with the boss because we did everything above board. Let's be honest, Trinity, we're not a poor church on the whole. And I know for myself I could always give more for Christ. But even so, I'm sure many of us have have rightly felt the the pinch. We've known things could be different if we weren't followers of Jesus. But, you know, we do know it could be different because we we look at those around us and we do see something different. We look at the adverts and the celebrities. We look at the the picture-perfect profile pictures on uh, social media. You know, we, we, we even look across the street and we see stuff. We see nice houses, we see fancy clothes, we see nice cars and jewelry, we see the security of a healthy bank balance and the the fun of a top-of-the-range phone. And as we compare, doesn't it just breed discontentment in us? You know, we look and we look and we look and there's just kind of a pain inside. And the truth is, even if we get more, the more we want, don't we? You know, it always lies to us. It never satisfies whether we're a Christian or not. I remember hearing of a three-time gold medalist who, who looked you know, to, to getting the next medal to kind of fix his life. But he said this. He said, a good friend of mine said, a gold medal is the coldest thing you will ever wear. It's the coldest thing because you think it will fix all of your problems. It will not. And yet, we know we look to stuff like that. We hope it will fix everything. And Christians, we can end up, we can end up saying, God, really? I'm with you and, and this is it? What's the point? Is it worth it? I could have that. So that's the first secret. Compare what you have. And then the second is this. It's compare what you do. Compare what you do. Verse 15. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They put God to the test and they escape. In other words, they get to do whatever they like. They just seem to have it all their way. You know, as Christians, we we follow Jesus. We carry our crosses. We live in obedience to him. We let our lives reflect what he's like. But these guys, oh, they just seem to, they just seem to indulge their desires and they're happy. It doesn't seem to ruin them. They do what they want. They, when they want, with whoever they want, they splash their cash, they sleep around, they take fun substances, they party hard. In other words, they, they test God, yet it all seems to go fine. They escape. I think what's tricky about this is we often see the happy facades, don't we? We don't see the pain. We don't see the addiction. We don't see the wrecked relationships. So we fall for it. We want it too. It's the sin rising up in us, isn't it? 
I want to do that. I, I want to indulge. I just want to go for it. Just let go for once. And we begin to resent God, don't we? We're a bit like that older brother in Jesus' famous story. He said this, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. It's bitterness, isn't it? It just bubbles up, discontentment. What's the point, God? just seems all in vain. We compare, we compare what we get to do. Now perhaps you've never kind of gone as far as the Israelites. You've, you've, you've never got to the point of thinking it's just a waste of time. You know, God's kindness, we've seen the joys of knowing God. The, the Spirit has been changing your heart. And yet you have tasted this bitter pill. Often your hearts and your eyes linger on what you don't have, what you don't get to do. And so often our ambitions start to shift, don't they? They shift from heading towards what God wants and we start to head towards what our sin wants. I wonder if a, a sign this is moving in a dangerous direction is that temptation just to push boundaries, to say, well, what can I get away with? How far can I go? I don't know, what, what's the biggest holiday I can get away with before I feel guilty? How far can I go with my boyfriend or girlfriend physically? How much is too much to drink? What's wrong with just one more bike or dress or car or phone or woman? You know, as we compare the wrong things, discontentment, it rises and our, our sinful, self-serving flesh begins to take over. Serving Christ, oh, that's a waste of time. We've looked at what we have and, we don't get, and what we get to do. And if that's you tonight, if you can feel the discontentment breaking in at the moment, well, God has a wonderful word of encouragement for us. Now, he does not deny there are costs, costs in what we own, and he doesn't deny that sinful desires need to be put to death. But instead, he wants to change what we compare. He wants us to see that we've been comparing the wrong thing at the wrong time. He wants to lead us on a different kind of comparison, one that will give us the secret of contentment instead. So let's look at that, the secret of contentment. And here God is, he's recalibrating our eyes and our hearts. He's taking us off the scene to the unseen. And the first secret is this. It's not about what we have, but whose we are. It's not about what we have, but whose we are. Listen to these glorious words, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord pay, paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasure possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God, he's taking us from, from what we do or do not have and instead he takes us back to fundamentals. He takes us to whose we are. God looks at his own, those who fear him, those who esteem him, and he remembers them. He hasn't deserted them. They're mine, he says. He, he has their name etched into a book in indelible ink. They're his treasured possession. He never takes them out of his sight. He can't be without them. He cares for them. He looks after them. A wonderful picture of this used to be the, the Toy Story films. 
don't know if you've seen them, but the, the later ones, they kind of lose this beautiful element. But for the early films, it was all about the fact uh, that the child Andy had written his name on his toys. You know, Woody, he's the key character, a toy cowboy, and he had the word Andy written on his foot. He belonged to Andy. Andy loved him. He was Andy's treasured possession. Even if Andy had other toys, he didn't lose his love for Woody. And this meant everything to Woody. It was his comfort and his rock. He belonged to Andy. That's the gospel. Just listen to the Heidelberg Catechism famously puts it. We've just sung a version of it. The first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Well, let me read the answer. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And those wonderful words, we belong to Christ. They are mine, God says. Now, we live in a world that is becoming more and more atomized, isn't it? National identity is fading. The family has broken apart. People have, have lost their moorings. Not even the body is stable anymore. No one knows who he or she is. But we do. We do. We're gods. They shall be mine, God has said. That's what we saw this morning, wasn't it? In Christ, God is our Father. We have peace with him. And it's written into that book, and it's actually not just an indelible ink, is it? It's actually in the blood of the Son. Jesus died to make it happen. He promised that whoever comes to him, he will never turn away. He's showered forgiveness on his people through dying for them. Why? Because they're his. It's not about what we have. It's about whose we are. And that changes how we compare, doesn't it? Sure, we can compare with others now, but now we're comparing something very different. And rather than just being envious of what they have, don't we just want to share what we have? We belong to God. Well, that reaches far deeper than any possession or paycheck. It lasts through life's ups or downs. It copes with the storms of life as well as the sunny days. Don't we just want to share that? We want to give it, knowing God, he has unlimited capacity for more children. And also it just helps us more and more just take our, take our eyes off stuff, actually. Because rather than worrying about what we own or what we're going to wear, instead we just know we can trust the one who looks after us. He dresses the lilies. He feeds the birds. How much more will he look after us? What great comfort and contentment that brings. So that's the first. It's not about what we have, but whose we are. So second, it's not about present indulgence, but future glory. It's not about present indulgence, but future glory. God wants to, he wants to kind of change the time zones of our hearts. Verse 18, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming 
burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stool. You shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Here God shows us something else unseen. Not unseen because it's, it's not physical like belonging to someone, but unseen because it hasn't happened yet. It's in the future. And he takes us to this very sobering comparison, actually. What happens to people when God judges them? And for the wicked, those who've rejected God, gone against his ways, ignored his salvation and love, well, for those, the image here is, is of burning fire, like a raging cauldron of a forest fire that consumes and destroys everything in its blazing path. Now, it's an image, isn't it? It won't actually be a fire. This is God's wrath, his, his just judgment and punishment for all wickedness and sin. But, but that judgment, it's not going to be less than a roaring furnace. It'll be much, much more against the heart set in rebellion of God that's, that's kind of overflowed in malice and unfaithfulness. Sexual immorality, violence, rage, selfish manipulation. That's where present indulging actually leaves us. That's where testing God takes us. There will be no escape. It might look like it now, but God will hold people accountable. I heard recently of a, a police officer who rather than prosecuting a young woman, took her aside into a car, his car and raped her. And it, it got me so angry. She could do nothing. She had no power. He just indulged himself. He did whatever he wanted. Thought he could get away with it. But all will be sorted in the end. The day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Although sobering, it is good. It is right. But there is another group. A group who serve God, who fear him, esteem him. And their future will be very different. This is a magnificent picture, isn't it? The sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. It's a strange image, isn't it, of a sun with wings, but it's, it's those descriptions as well, righteousness and healing. The sun, just imagine, it's, it's warming rays will put everything right again. Healing here, it's just, it isn't just making a sick kind of tummy better. This is full restoration transformation of life into what it was meant to be like, redemption of creation, everything flourishing, peace. As we see actually at the end in 4 verse 6, it's relationships brought back together, father to child, child to father. Where there was division, now there's unity. Where life was fractured, now there's wholeness. And what joy that will bring, like a calf leaping, such a, su a fun, joyful image, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever seen it. Like a, a young animal just having the time of their life in, a, in the field, jumping and leaping and skipping, not a care in the world. Just the warm sun on its back, fresh grass at its feet. And there'll be no more fear. The wicked will be gone. Well, that's a strange image, isn't it? To tread down the wicked. But it's there to remind us all the wrong with the world will have gone. And just like God will, will hate sin purely, 
righteousness, healing, joy forever. That's what the new heaven and the new earth will feel like. Just, just take it in. Kind of breathe in that future air. And there'll be no conflict within us, no sinful desires to put to death anymore. Everything we want will be good and pure. We'll, we'll have it because we'll have God himself, fellowship with him, forgiveness, harmony and peace. It's our future glory. This is the root of the Christian life, isn't it? Death now, killing our sinful desires. So those desires to do all the things that God has said are actually bad for us. I don't know, getting, getting rid of the pornography, reining in the sharp tongue, giving up our greed for the next bit of tech or clothing. But it's life in the future, glorious life. Now, we, we do have glimpses of the, present, of the future in the present, don't we? we you know, that, that wonderful church service or a celebratory feast with friends or a, a moment of joy gazing at the colors of a sunset. But they're, they're only a glimmer of what we're going to experience in the future. Life, glory. So we walk Jesus' path. His was a road of humiliation to death, but then exaltation and life. We, we walk his path even to glory itself. Paul said this, he said, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's, it's as if God's getting us to do two comparisons here. One is a comparison of, of different futures that await, facing the, the wrath of God compared to being welcomed into his life. It's a, no, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? There really will be a great chasm of distinction between us, some in the fires of hell, others in the feasts of heaven. But then as we see the glories of the future, he's getting us to do another comparison. To compare those glories of heaven with our kind of perceived glories now. To compare the healing and the beauty of the future with indulging our present sins and vices now. And again, the gulf is enormous I think sometimes we, we think the comparison is a bit like the, the, the height difference kind of between two, two people. It's a bit negligible. Sure, it's going to be a bit better then, but, but the fun I'm getting now, well, that's pretty cool too. But as C.S. Lewis has said, that, that just shows we're too easily pleased. The, the pleasures we get now are like a molehill compared to the Mount Everest of joy we're going to get in the future. You know, like eating an old moldy apple compared to a sumptuous feast. No wonder Paul could call it light momentary affliction. That's not to downplay pain and suffering now, but to play up how glorious and wonderful the future will be. You and I, if we're with Jesus, we have an unseen inheritance worth every moment of self-control and difficulty in this life. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? Do we trust God's promises that this future will be real? Because if so, may it spur us on towards contentment now. Even a contentment that leads to greater service for Christ. Greater giving of ourselves. Greater cost and taking up our cross. Why? Because we're going to gain the whole world. God himself when the day comes.
Let's not get lazy with this. The the pleasures of this world can be a drip feed, slowly but surely taking our eyes off the future. But let's fight for that future joy. Let's help one another keep our eyes fixed on that. Not present indulgence, but future glory. That's the secret to contentment. So two secrets. It's not what you have, but whose you are. And not about present indulgence, but future glory. But just to finish, we do need to deal kind of with the elephant a little bit in the room. On, on which side do we actually land? You know, who do we actually belong to? What is my and your future? Because Israel drew lines to work this out. There's a clear them and us in verses 14 and 15, isn't there? There's, there's the one, they're the ones who's trying to serve God, keeping his, his charge. And then there's the evildoers, the arrogant, them over there. And what they've done, it's like they've created a wall of people. Okay, imagine the bricks. At the bottom, it's kind of the worst of the worst according to kind of what they've done. You've got the murderers, the liars, the, the pedophiles and the pimps. And then, then as you get higher and higher, we get the kinder people. And, and somewhere on this wall, Israel, they've drawn a horizontal line. Anyone below the line, they're too bad to be with God. Everyone above the line, well, they'll, they'll be okay. And actually, I wonder in our hearts if we're all tempted to do this. You know, we, we look around ourselves and we... We kind of put everyone in in an order. We put ourselves in there too. And we know we're not perfect. We never put ourselves at the top. There's always someone else at the top. Um, But we we know we're not perfect, but we do think we've generally done enough. So generally what we do is we draw the line just a little bit below us. I'm going to be fine, but them, no, 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 they're worse. They're too bad for God. We, We can all think of someone meaner than us, can't we? And the problem is, God doesn't actually draw the line like we draw the line. Because if he if he if he drew the line according to what we did, our works, well, it'd be so far above the wall, no one would be in. The line is perfection, and there's only one man who's ever reached it, and it's Jesus, isn't it? The rest of us, not a chance. But if you look at Malachi, what we see here is not a horizontal line. But, but kind of a vertical line. He's created a group. Verse 17, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. He's actually created a group to spare. Not to reward according to what they've done, but a group to have mercy on. So he's not looking at works, how high up and down the, the level they are. He's, he's looking at whether they're with his son Jesus or not. He's looking at whether they're united to his son, the Savior, or not. And do, do you know how to spot someone who he's had mercy on? Well, it's someone who's for God rather than against him. Someone who fears him and esteems his name. That kind of love of God, it only comes once we know his mercy, doesn't it? So actually some of Israel, in their grumbling, in their discontentment, are actually showing themselves to be outside of God's saved people. They're against God. They're finding themselves alongside the wicked and the evildoers who had actually continually rejected God and, and shown it in what they did. So what about you? What about me? Will we be like Israel? Will we grumble 
speak against God, be discontent with what we have, will we remember his mercy? Remember his covenant with us in Jesus Christ, his son? Will we remember that we are his? His name poured over us in our baptisms. And we will remember his promise that he will bring us safe to himself in glory. Because surely that's what we want to remember, isn't it? Those unseen wonders, the secrets of contentment. And then, may that bubble up in us in love and thankfulness, in his strength. May our lives show it. Not worrying, not worrying about what we have. Or being frustrated by what we don't get to do. But finding life. Life in Jesus. Life in the one who will bring to completion what he started in us. His treasure possession. His glorious, spared, and content treasure possession. Amen.